Welcome to Target Cancer, a podcast about how health technology is affecting lives and changing the world for patients and oncologists. So, hi, my name is Mika Mutin. Um, I'm the CEO of a company called Xcures. Let me uh, just tell you what we do real quick on a few sentences. So, our company works with advanced uh, cancer patients um, and their doctors, and we do basically two things for them. Uh, number one, we gather and organize the patient's medical records across a number of providers and organize them into a personal health record that's easy to share uh, when they go from one provider to another and really summarize their entire case. And we're able to get those, basically the EMR record from all of the providers that they've seen. So it's just like an organization assembly of a personal health record, um, which as you know, in oncology can be very complicated, right? And just makes it easier for the patient, portable for the patient, and then easier for a new physician to come in and understand you know, the progress to date or case notes, uh, and et cetera. We get everything, DICOMs, case summaries, um, progress notes, um, et cetera. And then the other thing we do is we use that data to try and identify and uh, really prioritize treatment options that the patient and the physician should consider. Um, and for advanced cancer patients, you know, there's no right answer. So what we're basically just saying is if we had to start somewhere based on the research we've done, um, these are five reasonable places to start a dialogue about treatment options now um, and really trying to address the issue of of limited resources, frankly, for most physicians to go off and do custom research for every patient. So we're just trying to, you know, again, lift the bar to kind of do the basic um, grunt work, essentially. So um, the purpose of this podcast, right, is really to uh, put additional content out there. So our activities around those those two things is really to try and create a learning system and try to learn which cancer treatments right, and which treatment options are more effective over time. So we're capturing longitudinal data on what's happening in these patients. And then the purpose of this part or the podcast is really to share experiences and to talk with physicians and patients and really understand their journeys. And, and a big part of what um, I believe in any way is that when we share this type of information and dialogue as a community, like we create value for everybody just by having the dialogue. So I will stop there. The point of all of that was thank you uh, so much for coming uh, on the podcast and um, maybe, yeah, thank you. Tell me a little bit about you and your pack, uh, practice and your background and we'll take it from there and just have a, a discussion. All right, so I come from a very heavy research background in urology back in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt uh, where I was working on my PhD but I decided to uh, go toward medicine. Uh, wanted to be in the OR, so I did my medical school in Tennessee. Then I was uh, I did my residency in urology at Cedar Sinai, and I then I did an advanced fellowship at USC. Currently, I've been practicing. I'm more of a community-based uh, urologist in San Fernando Valley. However, I still work at academic places, Cedar Sinai, where I'm involved with the residents, uh, teaching, and surgeries. Um, I'm part of a five-man group. Uh, most of the guys that refer the patients to me, so I have a heavy surgical practice. Uh, I do a lot of robotics, cancer treatment, especially kidney cancer, prostate cancer. I take care of a lot of um, bladder cancer as well and other types of surgeries, but my focus is mainly oncology, specifically kidney cancer, but I kind of dip into other areas as well. 
Got it. So you're focused on renal kidney cancer. I yeah. assume as urologists, you see a lot of, I would guess, prostate and bladder, right? Those kind of. Yes, well, we do see it. It's, uh, it's, it's quite a bit coming in and just uh, try to take care of them in the best way with the tools that we have. And if they need something more, then I have a slew of pay, like, you know, physicians that I work with directly to try to put them in the best place possible, clinical trials or advanced treatments, advanced um, instruments that they have that we cannot have it in the community. So. Got it. So let's talk a little bit about uh, kidney cancer, your your specialty. So uh, what are the types of things like what what are patients experiencing or would you tell someone if they're experiencing that they need to start th- thinking like are there signs and symptoms of um, kidney cancers that people should be aware of? And like what are the kind of warning signs? So if a patient is listening of like thinking uh, maybe something's going on here, I need to kind of dig deeper. Um, well, with today, because everybody shows up to the ER and they just get a whole lot of imaging. So a lot of kidney masses that we find in just incidental findings and the patient's asymptomatic. They don't have any back pain. They don't have blood in the urine, no other symptoms. Back in the day, they used to present with basically three symptoms, blood in the urine, back pain, and fevers. And that was advanced um, kidney cancer, basically uh, uh, involving the reg- uh, regional areas or even extending all the way to the heart. Usually kidney cancer, which goes either metastasized mainly to the liver, I mean, I'm sorry, to the lung and some other places, but also it can extend through your vena cava, go all the way up to the heart because that's the, blood, mm-hmm. that's the flow of the blood. But if a patient presents to an outside like uh, internal medicine, uh, internist, and they're working them up to get the urine, if they, their urine dipstick is suspicious for blood, they should send it for microscopic analysis. Uh, and if it actually shows red blood cells, and depending on the risk factors, family history, genetic disease, previous cancers, their smokers, all of those, they may require an imaging just uh, to see if there is anything or not. Then the best imaging to do, um, they usually order a CT scan, CT urogram, because a couple of different causes for blood in the urine could be kidney masses, kidney cysts, bladder cancer, that's the other thing that we worry about. Um, or if a patient presents with gross blood in their urine, you should definitely work them up. Uh, based on those, we find these masses. Now we have certain criteria for what we find on imaging and what is the best way to approach them. Got it. Yeah. So uh, I love what you said. So some of it is just people going into the ER for something else, right? And this just actually happened to a family member of mine who had a fall and uh, uh, had a cracked rib. And they found out very luckily that it was very early stage lung cancer. This was uh, actually kind of one of these interesting blessings that you don't think of as a blessing, right? Um, everything's exactly. great there. So that's you're seeing patients come to you that way where they've had some suspicious mass and then um, or then, as you said, kind of more acute if people haven't had anything um, that was going along. So um, tell us a little bit about kind of the staging of kidney cancer and the prognosis, or maybe not the prognosis, but like what are the treatment options? So if it's like early, what do you do? And like where where's, where should patients be coming to someone like you in their practice, right? And then when do you kind of move them on? You said you participate in research and you're involved with some of the academic centers as well. What's What's that landscape look like? Well, at the initial presentation, I mean, uh, we basically urologists, we perform as oncologists. They don't really need to see a medical oncologist if they have, like, you know, they come in with the renal mass, okay? Mm-hmm. So uh, the renal mass is the staging breaks down, basically, the size of the mass. Uh, it, it, these are all categorized down less than 4 centimeters, between 4 to 7 centimeters, greater than 7 to 10 centimeters, 
uh, and higher, or um, if they involve the surrounding tissue, if they extend into the renal vein, all those staging goes into question. And also we get scans. I mean, we have to get long um, uh, chest, chest x-ray because, like I said, that's one of the first places that they want to go to. Mm -hmm. If the chest x-ray is negative and the mass is contained within the kidney, if possible, we perform a partial nephrectomy. We remove the mass. It is, a, mm -hmm. it is cancer unless proven otherwise. The only time that we usually obtain biopsies for kidney masses, if they have multiple masses, if they have a genetic disorder, certain folks that have like multiple masses that come uh, because like VHL, uh, tuberous sclerosis, it just depends on what it is. We get it because they have uh, risk for recurring masses throughout the year. So we got to make sure that we operate on certain patients that they definitely require it or we got postpone it. it until we have to do it. If so I think you said... I'm sorry, I just want to go back. You, you can actually do a partial removal, some of the kidney. You're that's not taking right. the whole kidney out. That's yes, correct? And that's, if you can do uh, that right away, that's kind of the first thing to do if it's just all in that one spot. Precisely. I mean, uh, before robotics, I mean, people did, uh, I did, this was their basically comfort level, especially in the community urologists. It used to do about, like I me, mean, used to do mainly all of this open 15, 20 years ago, which had a lot of comorbidities, you had herniations, and it was just a tough surgery for the patient, removing your rib and keeping him in-house. Then later on, uh, laparoscopic skills came along. Uh, it just depends on how many you did or your degree of comfort, comfort basically. If you're able to do uh, partial nephrectomy, not removing the whole kidney, because if you get a negative margin and uh, the type of the cancer it is, then you can essentially cure a person rather than removing the, all the nephrons. And as we know, the more kidney function you have, the better it is, the longer survival rates and less likely other having other comorbidities. Nowadays, because we do quite a bit of robotics, robotics is advancing. Now we have like the multiple arms, we're going to uh, what is the newest type of a robot is called a single port. We are able to uh, remove a mass of the kidney, leaving the rest of the, uh, the kidney intact within the body, and then uh, have the patient almost go home on the same day or the following wow. morning. Wow, really so, cool. Yeah. That's amazing. And then the other thing you were saying, though, is if it, if it has spread, so in that case, I assume you take the kidney out and then you would do some sort of bio, uh, analysis of the tissue sample of whatever you take out just to understand right. it and, and know. But if you're seeing many, like the cancer spread already, then you're going to do a biopsy and try and get some of the samples. Well, if, if it looks like it, I mean, if the cancer is advanced and we see uh, nodules in the lung or the liver, liver would be pretty much visceral metastasis is always worse, of course. When we see a kidney in that situation, I mean, we'll get a, I'll usually refer them to my colleagues that they're thoracic surgeons and they go in and do a biopsy. But at the same time, uh, we definitely offer patients cytorotoctive nephrectomy, meaning even though they have metastatic disease, we go in and remove the whole kidney. With, mm -hmm. uh, if possible, we get like, you know, we definitely, I try to get lymph nodes from the uh, retroperitoneal areas too for better staging. And then uh, for kidney cancer, um, there is no chemotherapy mainly. Main main point of treatment afterwards depends on how many metastases that they had. If they had, if they were able to remove it, uh, they may get immunotherapy. There are different types of immunotherapies available, uh, depending on, and also that depends on what kind of a cancer it is. Got it. So I'm used to hearing um, uh, just from the work that we do a lot about precision medicine and targeted therapies. And you're saying in the case of kidney cancer, there's really not that same targeted. So your choices are surgical resection so removing the cancer wherever it's possible yeah. to remove it 
And then the other piece you're talking about are these immuno oncology agents. So tar right. using your immune system to target it. How, how has that changed? I mean, those are pretty new therapies in the scheme of the cancer I landscape. Mean, right. For the past few years, especially with the PDL1 uh, inhibitors that they are coming to market, I mean, we have had a lot better response rate, more overall survival, and um, it's been more of a magical drug. And the, the field is continuing to advance. I mean, it's pretty rapidly advancing, going away, and uh, there are multiple clinical trials. There's some of these cancers that I mentioned. I mean, some people that have clinical trials from prior neoadjuvant, basically before the treatment of cancers that they try this. But uh, the data is coming out, and PDL one um, that you hear for even for lung cancer, Keytruda, that most people use. I mean, those are the similar right. stuff that come into play for kidney cancer as well. But like I said, it depends on the pathology because there are many different types of kidney cancer. Not all of them are the same, but you have to see which one it is more susceptible to and what we can do. Got it. Yeah. So in the different types of kidney cancer, then it sounds like there are different treatment options. So. Um, so as we think about this, we've already covered a couple of areas where it sounds like where technology is really making a big difference to you. Number one, it sounded like in the surgical techniques and the robotics that you're using, that's really advanced. So that's giving you, is that like more precision in what you're removing and better visibility? And I often wonder, have you seen or are you interacting? I talk with people at these kind of like augmented reality, right, of what's starting to happen where people actually have imaging and surgery at the same time. Is that something that's coming in your field? Yeah, I mean, the way that I do it, I mean, Intuitive uh, is the main robotic platform. I mean, there are other robotic platforms are coming along, but Intuitive is one of the leaders. And, I mean, to be honest, they have very dominance in the, uh, in the communities, uh, and they're moving forward. I mean, they're not st staying stagnant, and they offer us different, like, you know, a lot more technology. I tend to create a 3D, three-dimensional model of the kidneys that I'm operating. There's... Uh, um, a platform that we use, our hospital gave us the uh, capability to use it, and I utilize it quite a bit. I basically construct the, uh, the kidney, the vein, uh, the, the vessels, everything about it into this 3D model, which uh, you can actually uh, use the, uh, the VR uh, headsets to look at it in a 3D-dimensional form. That's very cool. And it helps quite a bit. I use that in surgery. I use a live intraoperative ultrasound, and then um, for resection, I mean, there are other capabilities abilities uh, available to see uh, where you're resecting, which blood vessel you're clamping, you know, you want to reduce your uh, ischemic time. I mean, these are all the things that are just going forward as fast as fast, but hopefully someday we'll be able to wear that device and do the surgery that way, but same not time. yet, I have not been involved in anything that is out there. So that's, that's, it's just fascinating to me. I just think we're, we're, some of this stuff is moving so fast. So we think a lot about, um, you know, the drugs, we have new drugs and new treatments, but the actual physical, like I think surgical techniques, um, even radiation technique, right? Like all of these different things that come together, just like the tech is just moving so fast. That's and then um, the drugs that are changing. Talk to me a little bit about clinical trials and when you, um, when do you feel it's appropriate for patients to start considering clinical research? Like when is the, like what's that crossover point and what should patients know about that process? Like how, how does it work? Uh, I mean, it all depends on what stage that they're present and also like the pathology. If I have like, if I remove a kidney cancer that has a, a, a poor future uh, cells in there like sarcomatoid, I usually tend to send them to an oncologist for 
a consideration for immunologic treatment or uh, if they're too young and they have like very bad futures to see if they can get qualified for any sort of a clinical trial or medications post-op rather than just observing them because some of them you have to be very aggressive they have higher risk for metastatic disease then that would require quite a bit of quite a bit uh, much uh, closer lookup and also that has uh, may have a negative impact on the, uh, the amount of healthcare costs that we have. So if you can give them something that has shown more efficacy in reducing the rate of recurrence, and perhaps that could help out. So that's when I usually refer them. If they have multiple metastases, if they have like, uh, to, uh, depend on the uh, IBC tumor, the level of it, all those I take into consideration. I work quite a bit. Uh, I'm lucky to be able to con uh, uh, worked with the uh, folks at Cedar sinai which is a very strong mm -hmm. program with oncology yeah. and uh, my old mentor, Dr. Young Kim, and uh, other ones that are involved that they do quite a bit of kidney. So I try to consult with them as well okay. and the tumor board. So I, I get the, I present the patient, especially if they have very bad future to see what Got is it. available. So tumor boards are really interesting. I think, um, uh, how did tumor boards work, right? Um, and what what is that? Is that like the way I understand? It, it's kind of cross disciplinary. You get in a group of experts together, and you kind of go through the case and talk about what all the different potential treatments are. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Uh, usually for our urology uh, tumor boards, we have wonderful urologists here, oncolo urologic oncologists that most of them attend, uh, like Dr. David Josephson. He's a very big guy at Cedars and other academic guys. Then we have uh, some of our uh, oncologists, especially GU oncology, genitourinary oncologists that they attend. Not all oncologists are involved in genitourinary cancer. So you want people that they're specifically doing this, doing these trials, mm -hmm. and they know much more. So we have some of the big, biggest guys in the field at Cedar sinai so uh, blessed to have them, and also radiation oncologists. Uh, we have radiologists and pathologists. They all come together, and we go through the presentation, how they present it, what we found at first, what their status is, if they're able to do their chores, which we call ECOG status, what they're mm -hmm. what basically come up at the end of it in conclusion that what is the best way to approach this. There is not a solid answer for most of these complicated patients, but we can come up to some sort of a con consensus of what we need to do in next step. That would be the Got best. It. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it sounds, so I, 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 I mean, the concept of a tumor board always makes like yeah. enormous sense to me, right? You get all the experts together. Yeah. Um, and I'm gonna kind of throw in a, a wrinkle that I always think about. I mean, um, what I've heard and what I understand is we actually have a shortage of oncologists, right? In general, in the country, I think we only have 13,000 oncologists. So I was wondering, like, how many patients does someone like you see, right? How busy are you, right? I'm trying to understand how busy you are. And then how do you, like, you got to go do all this, like, there's, like, extra regular stuff and then extra stuff. And how do you kind of balance those two things? And um, the reason for the question, just to kind of precede yeah. it, is I think patients, and I hear from patients sometimes, they're like, oh, I don't get any time with my doctor, right? It's like, yeah. it, they, they, like, they, they're trying to interact with the system. So I think it's, it's interesting for them to understand kind of the, the work time pressure that's happening on your, your side of, um, well, I, I never uh, sacrifice the patient time that I spend on them, especially with the cancer for uh, trying to see more patients. I though I'm in private practice, but I run my practice because the way that I, uh, my father died of cancer. So I was involved with all of that Sorry area. That. So it's, it's, it's something that happens. I mean, a lot of people experience, 
but you want to have the best experience possible. You want to, when you walk out of the door of the doctor's office, especially if you're diagnosed with cancer or probability of cancer, you want them to leave with as much as confidence as they can about understanding of what they do. So I never limit my time with them. I give them, um, I explain the disease. I explain, uh, I try to be as clear as I can of the route that we're going, but I try not to overwhelm them. Because patients want to know, well, well, what if that doesn't work out? What if that doesn't work out? I'm like, let's go step by step. This is the way that we're going to follow the guidelines. And for each cancer, I actually give a printout from, for the patients from NCCN, uh, which is mm -hmm. one of the sites that we all use. Uh, they have very friend, patient-friendly uh, pa pamphlets, for, so they can sit down and read it. And I usually have the patients come back in a week, and I ask them to write the questions that you have down, whatever that you need to know, come back and see me, because I want you to, whatever decision that you're making, I want you that decision mm -hmm. to be the best for you. Um, I've never uh, sat down and told the patient, okay, surgery is the only option. I'm like, these are all the options, and I explain it to them. And I actually uh, ask them if they're uncomfortable with what I'm presenting to get a second opinion so they are sure with what they're doing. Yeah, it's uh, what you're telling me is just fascinating. So I hear a lot of patients that, and uh, how important it is when I talk to the advocacy and community groups about being an activated patient, about being a personal advocate, yeah. and realizing that there are these decisions to be made. Um, one of the issues that I've heard from patients, and I, I think I, I, I understand this from my own previous history, is there's kind of two groups of people who know a lot about cancer. There's the people who work in cancer, right, and the people who have cancer. And like everybody else basically doesn't spend their time studying cancer because that's not a fun, right, uh, leisure activity for most folks. So when someone finds out as a patient for the first time that they do have cancer, right? Or there's a, as you, I think you, you had a great phrase for it, like a probability, like it's probably going to be cancer. Like maybe it's not fully confirmed, but it's highly likely. Where should they start in your mind? You have the pamphlets that you give them out at NCCN, but these now, in order to be able to advocate for yourself, you need to be educated, right? And you have to understand the trade-offs, right? That you're going to be making and you know like you would present a full set of options each one of those has kind of their own pros and cons it's kind of depending on what people want do you have like you rec you talked about nccn are there certain places where you feel the information is particularly um valuable or useful um versus things that you wouldn't you would say don't go do that right right because that's just going to get you misinformation um, Precisely. Uh, I mean, I use uh, other sites like Urology Care Foundation, which is very nice. Some of them, they contain videos, and that comes from the, uh, basically my uh, representing uh, Society American Urologic Association, which is the best data that you can get that is very, very well controlled, and basically NCCN guideline and that. I'm never being like, I mean, I don't present it to patients that I'm not against complementary medication, like medicine therapy. Like some people are like, no, that's not for me. I can't take care of it. I mean, we live in California, which you see right. more, more of those patients, to be honest with you. But I still like, you know, explain to them that you need to uh, don't just Google it. Dr. Google is not your best source of information. Best source of information comes from scientific studies that we have solid data for those, not somebody that comes up with an idea uh, to say, oh, this is the way to do it, or eat garlic, for example. I mean, I get those patients. I see a lot of uh, um, indigenous people. I see a lot of uh, folks that they're not um, 
unfortunately coming from a, like a well-equipped, well-educated family, I have quite a bit of those patients and that's part of my practice to try to help the community as much as possible. So I try to guide them. Uh, a lot of Spanish speaking and the culture is a little bit different. We have to be aware that not all cultures are the same. You can't mm-hmm. tell every person the same exact thing. You just got to right. try to identify with them as best as possible. Yeah, well, so you bring up a great point. The treatments, yeah. Yeah, we're talking, and I've talked about this with a couple of people over the course of the day, like health equity, like what does that really mean, right? And you just hit on what I think a lot of people have said best practices, like cultures are different, right? We all come from different backgrounds. We have different um, uh, educational and cognitive resources, right, that we might have. Um, and so being able to really present those options, well, uh, I applaud you for that. That's um, just, I love hearing that. Um that's out there. So um, just in terms of, I guess, uh, advice for, for uh, patients and going out there after they've come to see you, what, what it sounds like you're a big fan of advocate and pursue is there. Uh, yep. uh, I, I tell them, don't, don't put it aside. Uh, it's not going to go away. Uh, mm-hmm. You need to think about it. If you need to get more information, you need to get, see other people to get an idea what it is. And I usually uh, tend to give them a list of physicians that I truly think that they're leaders in the uh, in our field. If they want to do a consultation, go to certain academic places, see certain people to get a better idea what what is the best route for them to do yeah. so. So second and third opinions. Yeah, I yeah, think like exactly. some of the cancer, especially very complicated, that would make the patient feel better. Unless they say, okay, absolutely feel comfortable with you, but I like to go through every detail of it, all the kind of like you know risks and everything before we proceed with uh, treatment option. Got it. So uh, tell us just real quick, where's your practice area and the name of the practice and that sort of stuff so folks who might want to watch this, who might want to get in touch with you guys? Um... Sure. I currently uh, practice in Tarzana. One of my offices is located in Tarzana and the other one's in West Hills in San Fernando Valley. I closely work at the Cedars Providence Tarzana Medical Center and do quite a bit of operations over there, as well as Cedars Sinai Medical Center here in uh, Los Angeles uh, on the west side, basically, on, on the other side. Um, uh, I, my office is exactly located on campus with the Cedars Providence Tarzana Medical Center. I see where I see more. Excellent. Awesome. Yeah. Well, Dr. Afshar, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really uh, educational and informative. Yeah. And thank you. And um, let's stay in touch. I really appreciate uh, hearing from you. All right. Thank you so much. Uh, It's a pleasure. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.